Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. A couple announcements before we get started. First, join us today, Thursday, January 11th at 1 p.m. Pacific for a Q&A in the Slack group with today's guest, Jeff Soro. You can request an invite under the community tab at mix-methods.org. Also, check out Mixed Methods on Medium. You'll find UX research how-tos, write-ups on the latest conferences you might have missed, and more. Today's episode is sponsored by dScout, a remote research platform that's turning fieldwork on its head by allowing researchers to conduct experience sampling with real people right on their smartphones. Visit dscout.com to see how easy it is to start your own study. Here's this week's show. Jeff Sorrow has had an amazing career. In addition to having a PhD in educational statistics and research methods, he's worked at GE, Intuit, and Oracle. Jeff is probably best known, though, for his work at Measuring You, the quantitative research firm he founded in 2004. As it says on their About page, they focus on the statistical analysis of human behavior and quantifying the user experience. When it comes to qual-quant research, Jeff is a leading voice in the community. So I wanted to discuss what motivated this approach and speak a bit about how UX researchers could begin to incorporate this type of thinking into their practice. As an example of this approach, we'll be speaking specifically about Jeff's article, How to Make Personas More Scientific. Please excuse the connection issue you'll notice a little after 30 minutes into the conversation. This is Ariel Sionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Combining Qual and Quant. So I thought that we could start uh, today's conversation just with kind of a quick overview of your career path. So I know that's kind of a daunting question, but, you know, just kind of how you got to where you are, if you had to say it in just a couple minutes. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think um, I think it's always interesting, too, because many people, there's, there's just not that a very clear academic path to what we're now calling user experience or UX research. And so I think getting people's background, it's, you know, it's quite interesting. And so for me, my experience was probably as an undergrad. So in my freshman year at Syracuse University, I was in their, what's now a company known as the iSchool. And I was getting a degree in IT and in television and film at the same time in the journalism school. And I was like, oh, I don't wow. know. So I kind of wanted to do the TV. I was I interned at CNN and I wanted to go down this path. And then in my freshman year, 94, Netscape 1.0 had just come out right after Mosaic was being used. And it's like, huh, what is this web thing? So there was mm-hmm. a class being offered and you got exposed to it pretty early on. And you're like, well, this this thing might have some uh, staying power. And so uh, the the faculty member who had taught the course, his name is he's now retired. His name is Mike Nylon. He was my ended up being my honors thesis advisor, and he exposed me to this whole idea of of user behavior and understanding users, kind of from a communication theory background. And so I went forward and and started essentially measuring how people are going to interact with this new medium, and um, you know, which we called the World Wide Web. It's pretty funny how we referred to it back then. But at the time, it's my undergrad, I did a, a thesis on essentially usability. It was usability testing. And if the focus of my undergrad thesis, again, this is in 96, I think is when I started collecting this data, was mm-hmm. it was like the New York Times website and just understanding how people oriented to it and how it differed from how designers. And so many things we looked at 
you know, I guess almost 20, over 20 years ago now, haven't, haven't changed that there's this, this difference between how, how user perception and the importance of understanding and measuring that to improve design just doesn't change. Even though at the time, the screenshots that, that I took that I've I looked back a few years ago of, of websites back then, I mean, the New York Times is this funny image of, of like a newspaper, like above the fold, and you'd have this little image you would click on. And <laughs> this one, it's just the whole idea how you're, you're trying to getting the metaphor. I mean, quite literally, it's just like this whole idea of horseless carriages. Is That's like the last medium of a print, in this case, just gets so carried forward, and to see how that's evolved and become its own it was quite interesting. So that's how, that's how I um, that's how I got into it, and then I, you know, I couldn't, took more of a, a corporate path at that point, getting trained at some uh, GE businesses, uh, General Electric Power Systems and Medical Systems, and then got into, a, then basically the dot-com boom happened in 99, 2000. And then I'm, like a lot of other folks, got into uh, technology startups and uh, learned, you know, was able, you know, basically anything having to do with user information architecture, usability, if you knew anything about that remotely, uh, you were in high demand. So it was a good time to have that skill. So quite fortuitous. And then, you know, we all rode that up and down. And then I kind of went more into software, traditional software companies into it, PeopleSoft or Oracle and so forth before starting um, our business, Measuring You. Yeah. So I would love to hear about that part of the story, you know, because I, I think you've become so well known now in the field for the work that Measuring You has done and specifically, you know, your focus on a quantitative um, paired with qualitative approach. So yeah, I would love to kind of hear about the beginning of Measuring You. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what probably it started out as that as, um, you know, I, I had had this this exposure to the idea of usability testing, and it was a, a definitely a, you know an academic a, approach to usability testing. So it did mix quant and qual. But then um, I was heavily influenced by some early training at General Electric at the time under Jack Welch. There was a huge emphasis on quality, um, and so I went through a series of um, Six Sigma training classes. And as I ch- switched businesses, I actually got to do the training twice. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of time to learn a lot of these very difficult quantitative concepts and yeah. but the but the idea was that um you know instead of trying to get hire a bunch of statisticians and stick them around all these companies to measure things teach the people that are closest to the product and the service to understand the importance of measuring and to move things from beyond sort of intuition to that higher level of quality that gets you to a best in class experience or best in class company so i was exposed to this from medical equipment to power equipment to, to these processes and but of course for interface design or interface um evaluation and websites products the same principles were there and so the question was well why why is this not being applied there and uh, i had a lot of questions and so i wrote as i started realizing there was just not a lot of good answers out there i mean the emphasis at the time was very much on a qualitative focus which which i think is fine when you have a very incipient interface or industry as the web was in the late 90s and early 2000s, but as interfaces became much more refined, as with industrial processes, you needed to move beyond just like, hey, I'm going to grab five people and anything they say is going to be an improvement over where the site is now. Well, that's just not going to be the case for your PayPals and your Amazons who had already been refining their site. You needed to move to that another level. And so when I started measuring usability, that's what it was called at the time was, well, how do we measure usability? You know, mm-hmm. what, are the out, what are the clear outcomes? What is the metric that we're even optimizing around? It wasn't even clear. What is this fuzzy thing called usability? So I um, started um, doing a lot of research, writing, uh, reading literature, and you know, really trying to give back to, I think, others who are struggling with a lot of the same questions. So I wrote, I think, my first articles in 2004 
And again, at the time, the website was measuring usability. And, you know, the emphasis was, as the name suggests, is to really kind of help fill the hole in the methodology that was out there about how do you bridge the gap. Lots of questions were being asked, same questions about like sample size. Well, what statistical tests and um, how do you measure certain behaviors? And I came across a lot of work from, um, at the time was Jim, Jim Lewis, who was still at IBM and um, kind of a lifelong researcher there at IBM. And he had written a lot of articles, and so I reached out to him directly, and it sort of was great. It sort of started a, a, a kind of a career-long relationship that we've had in terms of writing and researching, and we decided it was good to get oh, a lot wow. of, Yeah, good to get a lot of this out there. So he was publishing papers that I would start contributing to, and then I started measuring usability and writing a lot of these in a, in a more colloquial manner for, for the masses. So it's like, hey, let's, if we all understood this better, um, I think we can all, you know, advance the field. Um, and so lots of those questions, you know, came up from Jim and we, we started, you know, you know, eventually written a few books together and a lot of papers and that still continue to now, I guess, 15 years later. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, certainly. So right now, obviously, I work as a user experience researcher, like many of the people who are probably listening to this conversation. And, you know, something that comes up all the time is, how do I kind of balance the qualitative research that I'm doing with, you know, quantitative research uh, or data that's being gathered? And I think that's something, you know, that I was so excited to talk to you about today is as somebody who's, you know, obviously worked in this field for a very long time and does have that perspective of the qualitative research and the quantitative research, like what do you see as the ideal balance uh, between those two? You know, and I think, it very much depends on on the project, but I uh, the particular prod project that you're working on. But just asking that question, I think, is already you can't underestimate the importance of just asking the question of what combination, because I think for so many people, it's not a question of and; it's a question of or. That there's this idea that I either use a quant method or I use a qual method, and it's a, it's a false dichotomy. And and what's great about what you're doing in your program is this whole idea of mixed methods. And it's still quite a new concept, even in academia, but it's an important one. And so it does depend on the project. Um, it, you know, There are clearly going to be more quantitatively focused research questions um, and other ones that are going to be more exploratory. And you really want to understand a lot of the why and go deep. And I think the challenge for a lot of people is they understand that, but they'll, they think okay, I, under, I want to go deep and I want to understand the root causes or I'm developing a product. So I'm going to, I'm going to do a contextual inquiry. I'm going to interview, I'm going to observe, I'm going to get quotes. The sort of things you really need to get in the headspace of, of either potential users or existing users, potential customers. But then I think the problem is, well, I've, if, because I've done that now, um, I, I should now go into a, a some, somehow a quantitative method and I'm, I'm going to just going to abstract and generalize what I've known from five to even 10 or 15 people onto a potential populations of tens of thousands. And this is just where, I mean, to use, I hope this is an appropriate metaphor. You're just, you just need to switch tools in your toolbox. You, you're, you're, you're going from a screwdriver, maybe to more of a, you know, a drill or something like that mm-hmm. as you want to scale up. And so as soon as you need to make, start making questions about generalizability and precision, um, it's hard not to start talking about um, the, the sort of the cl- same classic questions that statisticians and market researchers have dealt with for you know pretty much a hundred years now. Um, it, and one does, of course, not replace the other. No more than I said earlier on. Then the internet replaced newsprint. I mean, certainly there's less print out there, but it's just helps specialize what we use each of those tools for. 
We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. How many times do you think you touch your phone a day? Try 2,617. Seems like a lot, but D Scout research shows that's just the median. Since everyone is already on their phone, D Scout took qualitative research right to the people. Their pool of over 100,000 participants answered client questions on the largest digital diary platform around. You don't need to spend weeks setting up and recruiting for your research when you can use D Scout to capture experience remotely. Learn how quickly you can launch your next study at dscout.com. Something that I'm always thinking about or wondering, especially at this point in my career, is like, what skills should I be developing right now on the quant side? Because I have done, you know, a lot of qualitative research and in past roles, more quantitative. But you know, like for someone who, for a researcher right now, let's say who is primarily working in qual, like, do you have any recommendations in terms of, you know, the Uh, statistics tools, or you know, kind of like how they begin to build up that quant side, so that they can better partner with, you know, maybe the people in the organization who are doing that, or just be a better advocate for the users that they're representing. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think I think there's a, a lot of different approaches, and I think certainly one of my missions has been to try and make the whole idea of statistics and quantification. Less intimidating for people. Yeah, less, totally. <laughs> uh, less, less of a. That's not my job. I didn't. Go, I mean, there's so many people. It's like they did not go into UX because they have a strong quant. It's just, it's just not what I see. And you can generally see people's background. It's they love the idea that you're helping make people's lives better. And there's, I mean, a little bit of this is a stereotype for a reason. But this whole idea of measuring and analytics. Well, you're going to be some data scientist that's just going to pour over large, um, large data sets. And there's this sort of like. Um, You know, no human aspect, you know, no, no humane aspect, if you will, to that that part of the job. But so I think my goal is to make that approachable, and I do that in a number of ways. Obviously, on my my article every week, uh, measuring you, we 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 talk, we touch on quantification. I have a boot camp every year that I give. It's three days, and and that's exactly the target group I have for people who want to get immersed, people who are familiar with UX research. Know that there's quantification out there, but how do you get into it? It's a little bit of understanding some core. Statistical concepts, but it's really just applying that. And what's nice about the books we put together, and the reason why we wrote the books, particularly quantifying the user experience, and and, and a more approachable the the customer analytics for dummies books is you you're sort of there's a, a more of a finite number of of metrics and methods and the type of data that you're going to get where you're doing UX research, and it helps focus that. And I think what's challenging for a lot of people is they say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to do stats. I'm inspired by Jeff. I'm going to open up my my stats book that I had to take in grad school or undergrad. And I think what you run into right away is that like, well, the examples are so inapplicable or broad. And I think most unfortunately, you'll run into situations where they'll say things like, oh, if your sample size is less than a hundred, these methods are not applicable. Don't do that. And then it gives these people the feeling that they're, they're going to get in trouble and somebody's going to call them out for not knowing what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate people can use statistics almost as a weapon to to um, you know to to humiliate other people. And I think it's really unfortunate. My goal is, of course, to give people, I guess, a, a shield against those weapons here. But I think there's a few things that you can do just to, for a fundamentally, if people are getting into the idea, is first of all, just understand the different types of data. Like we talked about, qualitative versus quantitative. Um, how how you can actually still count and quantify things that you observe. Just because there's not a rating scale or a stopwatch doesn't mean you can't quantify 
things that people do or frustrations or challenges. Challenges. I think you start from that and then realize that there's different ways of data that can be subdivided even in, in terms of um, quantification. There's, there's uh, sort of a fundamental binary measure. Something happens, it doesn't happen. People complete a task or don't. They purchase, they don't. Uh, there's more continuous type data. Mentioned time on task, rating scale data. So knowing the different types of data, first of all, that you're going to get, is step one. I think step two is going to be really understanding this whole concept of sampling error. I think unfortunately people get in the mindset that I'm going to do qualitative research and then therefore I don't have to, I don't, I'm not confronted with the issues of margin of error and statistical significance and generalizability. Well, just because you're not quantifying it doesn't mean you're not dealing with the fact that you're still sampling from the population. Mm-hmm. And any sam- sample is going to have some amount of error. It's not going to be a direct correspondent unless you measure everybody. So I think if you understand just the idea that every time you measure, just like a margin of error from a poll, there's going to be some amount of fluctuation. And you want to be able to differentiate that signal from the noise in that case. And there are sort of techniques to deal with that or things that I talk a lot about a lot of my article, on my blogs are about confidence intervals. Um, that generally speaking, your larger sample size, you're going to have more precision, but you don't need to have this massive sample size always. But understanding variability, building those confidence intervals, understanding basically the concept of statistical significance, and then getting practice based upon once you've known your data type, once you've understanding sampling error, and then understanding, okay, am I making a comparison? Am I trying to generalize something about the population or am I trying to uncover insights or problems? Really helps focus which statistical test you could use. And we have in those books flowcharts to help people get practice. So real training wheels to get people used to the methodology and the approaches. Yeah. I think it's so interesting what you said in terms of the personality of, you know, people who choose to go into user experience research versus maybe someone who chooses to go into data science. Um, mm-hmm. Two weeks ago in a conversation that I had with Matt Gallivan of Airbnb, we were talking about really the exact same thing in a lot of ways and how there is a difference between the roles, but the two should be very complementary in a lot of ways. And yet it seems like often they're not. And so I think, Mm -hmm. you know, for me personally, in my practice, I wonder how I can get more familiar, uh, you know, just to kind of bridge that gap and not have it be so difficult to collaborate or speak the same language. So just at a high level, like, is there one statistical program that you use like R or something of that nature that, you know, it's kind of the one that you. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, obviously, and I think for the vast majority of researchers, they don't need to worry about either purchasing or learning lies. I think that can be what's a little overwhelming. We've got, you know, there's essentially three to four statistical tests and approaches that are going to address probably 80 to 90% of all your needs in UX research. And all of those are available off of my website. So these are, you're comparing two proportions, calculator online, you're building a confidence interval, so you're estimating precision, you're comparing the means of, of times or rating scales, it's available on the website. Th- that's going to get the bulk of what you need to do. If you're going to go a little bit further, more advanced, um, I use SPSS. A lot of people in the behavioral sciences are comfortable with that. It's fine. It's a it's a rather expensive program. My friends at IBM have made that really quite expensive. <laughs> so there's it's hard for companies to justify that. So you mentioned R and a lot of grad programs in companies. A lot of my team uses R. We'll use R. We have our book that's written R as well. So if people can go through that. Um, that's one approach. The challenge with R is even though it's free, it's nice, it's open source, there's a lot out there, it's still syntax-based, and so you're going to have to learn. Uh, you're going to feel like you're, you're, you're learning a programming, even though it's really kind of simple commands. But it, it's, it's really quite an initial barrier for a learning curve that's challenging for a lot of people. But not, 
which is one of the reasons why I think most people are comfortable with Excel and you can do a lot of these things just in a in simple Excel. And almost every company has access to Excel and even Google Sheets if they don't have Microsoft Office. And so for that reason, we have a series of just simple how-to steps to do these things in Excel. There's, I mean, if you want to buy, I have a calculator on my website that says shows you how to do every single one of these. And, and in many cases, how to calculate. You can then see the calculations and then create your own spreadsheets from that as well. So I, I think that the, the lesson to be learned is you don't need to budget or spend a lot of time on learning expensive statistical packages to use really basic statistics. You know, no different than when you go to a really good restaurant, like an Italian restaurant, especially in Italy, you're like, oh my God, that dish was so good. What is the secret ingredient? What did they spend so much money on or what did they find? And then what you find out is that it's, a, it's actually just the basic ingredients together that you can use and the right combinations will get you just the best dish. And so it's simple ingredients, but the quality of that and using them properly that gets you it. You don't really have to go spend a lot on statistical packages and finding the one magic statistical method. This, they're, they're basic. Yeah, I feel like this sounds like we've almost rehearsed it or something because it's like so perfect and easy. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But really, I mean, I feel like even just like the simple conversation has me feeling like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, four like pretty basic calculations doesn't sound intimidating. Like I should look into that. So yeah, I'm excited yeah. to kind of grab those links and, and put them in the show notes so that people can more easily find them. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to point you to that. Cool. So what I wanted to talk about today, in addition to everything we've already gone over, is you know you wrote you as you mentioned as you mentioned a couple times you are very prolific in terms of your writing and one of the articles that has been most popular on your website is one called How to Make Personas More Scientific, and I feel like you know this article and you know personas in general are really kind of a great example of what we've been talking about in terms of you know, how do you balance qualitative and quantitative and, you know, where is kind of a happy medium there? So I thought we could talk about, you know, how you make more personas more scientific and kind of just walk through those steps to give people an idea of, you know, how you actually apply this um, day to day. Yeah, that sounds good. And I think just, you know, I mean, I think most people in your audience are probably familiar with personas and, you know, but just, it's just sort of a high level there, you know, the essentially, as the name suggests, this sort of personification of a group of customers or users mm -hmm. or kind of an archetype. And um, I, I was exposed to personas uh, back in the late 90s by, I think a lot of people were too, in Alan Cooper's book, The Inmates Are Running the Asylum, mm -hmm. 1999, 2000, 2001. And I mean, it made sense and he provided some great examples, you know, the airline seats. And I think it just really took off and to a point where, you know, everything was, it was not about are you using personas? It's just like, how over the top are you with your personas? And you have these people with like, you know, the names and their cardboard full-size cutouts and <laughs> All these personalities about, um, you know, people's dogs and the, their their pet, the, what they do, and, um, and their cars and 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 their kids' names, and then of course after a while it started making people wonder, like, well, and these by the way, a lot of these personas are for like enterprise boring ERP software, mm -hmm. and you and you're sitting here wondering, like, does that really matter? I mean, you sort of drink the Kool Aid, we all drank it a little bit, and then I think you're like, well. Does that matter? I mean, how many personas and what variables really matter? And I think 
you know, in many respects, the personas as applied to UX research are, have became, you know, sort of became a, a victim of their own success. Mm-hmm. And um, I think what started happening was a, a sort of a smold- slowly smoldering backlash of people starting to question their validity in actually understanding and, and, and driving better design. And I think there's a lot of open questions that are still remain to be researched, but there's a lot of this is what drove to drove me to write that article. And I think it's it's a, it's a great example of where we're mixing qual and quantity. So it's it's a good topic for today. And so we take this idea of going deep and understanding people in a qualitative method. What challenges? What frustrations are they having as they're trying to accomplish things? I mean, we're we're ultimately not generally in UX research designing brands and the more ethereal things. We're, we're usually trying to build and 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 influence better products and services. And that really comes down to you know, what jobs are people trying to get done? And I don't mean jobs in terms of like welding or plumbing. I mean, in terms of, of using electronic means to solve and make, make things better, whether it be finding products or um, balancing books and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so um, the idea is, well, how do we take this deep qualitative and then merge it with, with similar approaches that have been used for a long time in other fields? So the idea behind making personas more scientific is definitely a mixed methods approach. People are comfortable with this idea of interviewing, observing, and building personas. But instead of stopping there at, say, 5 or 10 or 15 observations, either 20 or 30, using qualitative methods, come up with all the quotes, the descriptions, the pets, the food, the proclivities that you think are important. And... um, Instead of considering that your final product, consider those more proto personas. That these are these are theories and these are ideas. You've got things, but it's hard to know um, what variables really differentiate. And when you're talking about products that are going to be served up to an audience of tens of thousands or millions of people, you know differences of five to ten percent in terms of the percentage of people that persona represents and the type of jobs or problems they're trying to solve. A ten percent shift is could be quite substantial. And a lot of people wanted to know, well, who am I designing for? Which one? Who is this persona? And is is this represent half or is this represent ten percent? Mm-hmm. And that's those are those are questions that you can't answer with typically qualitative methods and certainly not the way that personas were being done. So essentially, all I've done in that article, is, which we talked about at UXPA, we mentioned it in other places as well, is let's extend that scientifically. So you've got your proto-personas. You've got um, essentially a lot of the evidence there. You know, you turn that and start using traditional quant by focusing on the people you think are in that persona by using by turning those into more closed-ended questions running a traditional survey to try and now validate what you what you've um what you've identified in your qualitative methods just a quick question there because i feel like you know as someone thinking of actually like okay how am i going to go into work tomorrow and do that because as I, i was reading the article there's there's a number of different quant you know, kind of steps or things that you mentioned, but what you just said about a survey, would that mean, for example, let's say I do a series of interviews, I identify four groups and there are like five main attributes in each group. Would I then put together a survey with, you know, say 20 questions around each of those 20 attributes or whatever. And then I would actually see if, oh, there's like 40% of people that align to the you know, five attributes I identified for group one, and there's 20% of people aligned to group two. Is that, am I thinking about that right? I I think that's exactly right. And I think before we even think about that, what you then have to think about is like, you've identified, or we, when we've done this, have identified four groups in our data. The next thing you can do is then verify 
are there actually four groups? Is it two groups? Is it three groups? Is it six groups? And so instead of just assuming now I'm going to confirm this by just assuming that I'm what's called reifying, that I have a theory that these exist, I'm just going to assume they exist instead of assuming it, you would then say, okay, I'm going to ask those survey questions, like you said, 20 or 30. Then the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to let the correlation between how people respond define those groups for me. So my theory would be if I have four groups, does the data bear that out? Mm -hmm. And this is where we're going to first use uh, some more traditional clustering techniques. The one I mentioned in the article is something called latent class analysis. And it's it's a little bit more complicated because it has to use binary variables. In other words, do people say, do agree to a lot of statements as opposed to just using a lot of rating scales? You You know, are they... In this age group, are they in this geography? Do they um, do they have this type of job they're trying to perform? You get a lot of yes or no's, and then statistically, those are a little harder to analyze. So R has a great package for analyzing that, as we talked about. So the first thing I'm going to do is, if my theory of four people is right, and I, if my theory that these are the groups that are right, um, I should see these variables starting to cluster together in those areas. And there's a statistical way of doing that. Once I've then done that, and it could be, again, there's a different number. And in fact, there's different variables that are that are grouping people. I've never not been surprised at this stage. You just, you, you, you use that call to direct. So you don't just sort of let the data drive you. you. You have some theory that drives the data as well. And you get that theory from your qual. But from there, you, you verify that those are the clusters. And then as you'd mentioned it, you'll then do is say, okay, now that I've got these clusters, and maybe there is one that I verified, what percent of the population best falls into this cluster? Then I can then see, okay, I had 500 people, I had 200 people respond, 10% of people fall into this. And then I could say, okay, my estimate now is going to be somewhere between about 4% and 16% of my target population falls within persona A. Yeah. So I think, I'm I'm curious, you just went into this latent class analysis, and I have a couple of questions around that. I think first is, is that something that you think that, you know, a typical UX researcher should, you know, consider learning how to do and taking on? You know, that's a great question. I'm, I'm not going to uh, beat around the bush. It's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. And, um, but I think it's, I think for the right person, it could work. But, you know, half the battle, anytime you're you're trying to get a, uh, a particular job done, whether it be a job around your house or something on your car, if you know enough about what's going on there, you can better find the people to help you. So whether it be a lot of organizations have more quantitatively focused people, obviously they can call us at Measuring You. We do these things all the time. But then you're able to focus specifically, just like when you hire a plumber, you're like, well, I know a little something about what's going on with my dishwasher here. I can help you. I can help focus the right person I'm looking for instead of not knowing what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so for some people, that means learning that. Other people, it means um, fo- you know, specifically focusing like, look, here's where I want my data analyzed this way. And this is the type of methodology that I believe should work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I I think that totally makes sense. The other question that I had as you were, you know, kind of going through that and I was thinking, how would I do this? Or, you know, would I kind of attempt this myself was also around what you were saying, where it sounds like you go into the analysis with guesses, right? Like you've done these qualitative interviews, you have a certain idea of these groups, and then you go in. And it seems like from an outside perspective that you're going in with a certain type of confirmation bias, you know, because you're saying, I think this is what it is. Is that right? So maybe just walk me through or explain a little bit, because I I imagine that that's not true. But yeah, that's kind of what it sounds like from, you know, to an outsider, I think. 
Yeah, and I think we're always there's always going to be certain research biases. We're all going to have our pet projects, but I think maybe it's just subtly rephrasing or rethinking about what we mean when we say confirmation bias. But the whole statistical framework that we use now. So if you really wanted to be a quant nerd, and you're going to go into just just a statistical approach of everything, the the, the framework that's set up is something called null hypothesis statistics testing (NHST). And the idea behind that is we go into every set of data with a hypothesis. There is no difference between drug A and drug B. That's my hypothesis. So what I could be, I'm going to go do with that data is I'm going to confirm or deny that. Now, usually when people conduct research, they think there's a reason. They think that drug A is better than drug B. That's why they did, or that drug B or drug A is better than the placebo. That's the whole reason why the funding was in. The reason why you're doing UX research is because somebody has a pretty good idea that there is differences there. Otherwise, we're sort of just wasting our time. There should be that, that theory there. But now, I shouldn't just dismissed evidence in that way. And that's bad. I think that's what you're getting out with confirmation bias. But there should be something I'm looking to confirm or deny when I go in. This is the whole idea of having testable hypotheses. And this is a, a concept that crosses more than just UX research. It's, it's everything from minimum viable products, lean thinking. It's what, are you, what is your hypothesis you're trying to test? And don't just come up with that willy-nilly. Have a good theory of why that hypothesis is there. And I think that's where every UX researcher who's comfortable with their domain and their product, you should have some idea about this. And then when we did this research with um, Walmart Grocery, when we we're coming up with the personas for them, as I talk about in the article in UXPA, you know, the researchers we work with had spent a long time understanding who their users were and, and the, the, the proto-personas and the type of, they looked at the data and the type of products that people were buying, the challenges they were running into. You should have some idea about what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Now, what, should, what you should do is like, oh, it, it, you know, you're going to be confirming some things and denying other things, but more often what happens is patterns exist, but they're not nearly as strong as you were expecting in some cases. Interesting. Um, and that and that's the sort of way you should approach that. Yeah. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I think when you say it like that, it sounds a lot different. Um, and it, yeah, I'm more comfortable, I think, with that. Yeah. So something else that was interesting to me in your article was you were kind of talking about exploratory versus explanatory um, and and that differentiation. So I think that's something, you know, kind of interesting to to talk about and explain when you go with each and, and really what each is. Yeah, and actually, that's the, the, this 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 itself is its t- is its own topic that's broader. And so there's there's an entire journal uh, dedicated to mixed methods research. I mean, that's literally mm-hmm. what it's called mixed methods journal mixed methods research. But I think they have these these topologies that they say generally that when you're mixing qual and quant together, um, you could think of uh, these these topologies. And, and one that you mentioned is something called an explanatory sequential design, where you essentially start with quant and then you go to qual and then you interpret those together. In contrast, there's an exploratory sequential design where you start with qual and then you go to quant. So the examples that I was giving there where we start with um, qual persona research and you do it with verification would be more of a traditional exploratory sequential design. But I think as a lot of people, as we go down this path with different companies, we'll go back and forth of like, well, shouldn't we do like quant? Then we dig into the qual and then, or and there's, there's, there are, valid arguments for all of these. And so what ends up often happening when there's strong opinions is we say, look, we're, let's start with qual, like a little qual, inform a quant survey, then let's dig back down again and make sure now that we know who our, where our clusters are, let's really start interviewing these people again. Usually what dictates this is like, we only have so much time, we only have so much budget, so we can't do a bunch of qual, a bunch of quant, a bunch of qual. And so you have to kind of pick those. But those are the two 
kind of popular topologies, one that's less used, at least that I found, is something called a, what's called a convergent parallel design. And in a convergent parallel design, you essentially are doing qual and quant simultaneously. Often mm. one team's doing the qual, one team's doing the quant, then you come together and you, you, you relate it. I don't think it's necessarily as uh, efficient for the, the type of persona work I talked about, but depending on the research you're doing, it can be. And in that, you're sort of reconciling differences. When you see convergence there, you interpret it. It, it helps um, so you know, it helps really bolster some of the, the patterns that you're seeing when the two things happen in um, both qual and qual. Yeah. Are there any kind of high-level patterns or questions that you recommend you know, to kind of address with exploratory or explanatory? Because I, I find myself kind of going through you know, what you were mentioning where it's like, well, should I start with this or should I start with that? And kind of going back and forth. So I'm curious if there's any, you know, kind of high level guidance that you've, um, you know, that you would offer. You know, I think, I think the idea is between the, 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 the sort of the, the, how they're named are, is indicative of when you should use it and the type of questions you should be asking to, to the, to the most extent. So when we talk about an explanatory sequential design, the idea is that you're trying to really explain something that you found in a survey. And so, or in quant is, is the typical idea is that we collected all this data. Why is nobody recommending the product? Why is nobody using it? I want to explain that. How do I get to that? Why? And so to explain that, one of the best ways is you get into those one-on-one sessions, you do those contextual inquiries, you do the qual. So if you're really trying to answer that question of why, maybe starting with the quant and going to the qual would make sense. You know, in contrast, the exploratory is where you really don't know. You're like, well, who are my personas? Mm-hmm. Who, who, who would use this? You're really going out there and you start talking to people. I mean, if I want to, you know, get an idea about something, you, you, you start you start that way. You start talking to people, start observing people. And then from that, you build those, those hypotheses. When you're, so it's early on and you have more of a, you know, in, inchoate idea about something, go with qual, then you're starting to building things and you go with that quant. Yeah. I think that's really helpful advice. Um, and yeah, and it definitely lines up, I think with my experiences when I've found one approach to be more successful or helpful. Um, so, you know, obviously you've done so many of these projects and, I'm curious how people respond to them, how your clients respond to the, you know, qual quant mix. And if you've gotten any feedback there from, you know, all of these people that you're doing work for. You know, it's definitely been positive. I mean, I think part of that though is, is, you know, is a little bit of, um, you know, self-selection bias or representative bias, if you will. Typically mm-hmm. when people come to us, we, we, they already have sort of drunk in my Kool-Aid a little bit. And then, you know, sort of had buy into this notion of mixing these things. So you generally have a friendly audience. And what I guess, but I would say the feedback that we're able to provide or the feedback we get from the service that we're able to provide through these projects is I think people generally really like to be armed with somebody who can talk to the quants and they'll get the sort of, you know, street cred about, you know, dropping p-values and high-level um, statistical terms from the, the guy who has a PhD in statistics. <laughs> but at the same time, un- they, you understand the, the, the really the impetus behind why we do UX research and understand those methods and how to put that into context. And I think, you know, this is simply a symptom of that the need to do that is that a lot of this mixing of the methods is that, look, we've got businesses who make every decision. It's got to be measured. If it's not measured, it's not managed and so forth. And so you got to be able to speak that language. But then how do you do that in such a way that's not dictating 
two researchers the wrong methods or the wrong approaches or making them do the wrong things just to satisfy some scorecard somewhere. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, being able to drop p-values sounds pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. Hit the p. Yeah. So are there, I mean, it sounds like, you know, your clients are finding a lot of value in this approach. And, you know, part of that sounds just like it's a mental... um, confidence, right? Or being able to justify it to this larger organization that is both qual and quant and kind of wants both of those things. Um, So that's really, yeah, that's really, I think, interesting to hear and also makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, have you found any like common mistakes that researchers run into when they first start trying to, you know, do this qual quant approach? You know, that's a good question. I think there's, there's, I think it, it speaks to, the, 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 I think the mistakes that you see uh, are, are like more of a function of people's background. If they're less comfortable with quant and they're going into to quant, they'll, they'll run it, you know, they don't know what they don't know and they're not sure like, oh, sample size is legitimate. But I mean, I think, I, I, don't, I don't think I necessarily see common mistakes necessarily as much as it is. You know, it's just a new path for so many people. How many people have, in UX research have done a latent thoughts analysis and are, you know, not many researchers I know, not many statisticians I know. So I think the idea of of not knowing where to go, so it's less of a mistake as much as it is more of concerns. I think broader, broadly speaking, um, probably just from practice, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit more of a half glass full kind of guy. So I don't think a lot of these is maybe mistakes as much as it's just uh, things that people start learning. But, but some of this is, um, you know, really around the idea of understanding the limits of the methods that, you know, your sample sizes don't need to be extraordinarily, always extraordinarily large. It, it's derived meaning, but then conversely, they do need to be large enough to to make the sort of statement that you're you're going to be making, and so uh, I, I think I, I'll often see um, people who, uh, oh yeah, I get it, Jeff. You talk about more sampling error, and it's important to put your confidence intervals, and uh, that sample size is is too small on one extreme. Then on the other extreme, oh Jeff, I've read your articles. You talk about how important how we can learn so much from a sample size of five. And you, you you explain why that works. I'm going to use that sample size of five to, you know, draw these large conclusions about multiple groups. Well, that that's 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 a misapplication of that principle. So it's a lot of it's really the emphasis. I think you get a little bit of that, and then again, knowing which method to use properly um, as well. And and I think just like any time learning any any skill or any method, the learner in general doesn't isn't able to differentiate what's important from what's not important. And you see this, whether it be um, people learning chess or people from versus master chess players, just the sort of patterns they're able to detect early on. You're just not making the same, the same kind of mistakes um, versus somebody who's, who's more novice and is, is just doesn't understand the type of problems that they're going to run into. And you see that again with the methods and the sample sizes. This whole conversation is so helpful and refreshing in a way because I feel like so often UX researchers can get really focused on the qual side almost because, you know, it it's a little bit hard to bridge that gap and figure out how yeah. to collaborate with data scientists. So I, I feel like it's it's really helpful to have someone who is so comfortable in both worlds and not to say that, you know, I definitely don't want it to come across as I see more value in one or the other, but I definitely see value in in being comfortable 
at least having a conversation about both and facilitating yeah. that collaboration. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about, about this conversation, you know, and as we kind of wrap up, I wanted to bring it back just to you personally and kind of like what keeps you doing this work? Like you've done so much great work for such a long time. It sounds like, you know, you've had an opportunity to work with so many interesting clients and yeah, I'm curious, like at this point in your career, what keeps you doing this particular work? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's, I, I really enjoy giving back to the community. I enjoy giving back to the, an area where I feel like I've struggled to try and answer some of these questions and then to help really advance this whole idea of, of, you know, you know, making better experience, the products with better experiences, you know, starts with just getting a lot of this methodology out there. So, I, and I think you'll hear this from a lot of people, but you know, every day I write, you know, put it, we put out a, a thousand words, 1500 word articles a week. And then we've got a, a book coming out as well on benchmarking the user experience, my sixth book on this, these topics. And it's, it's really helping. I think the driving force there is there's so many great questions that need to be addressed with data, with, you know, with empirical investigations, you know, instead of, of, of sort of arguing over the water cooler about how many points in your rating scale you should use five, seven, and I'm, you test it, you look at the literature and then you talk about that. And then the whole field gets advanced instead of us rehashing the same argument over again, we say, Oh, actually there's only like a one or 2% difference. So it's not really that important of an argument, but if we did need to settle it, you know, it turns out that, you know, here, here's the point that it's a little bit better. So I think getting the satisfaction of actually contributing those conversations with data, whether it be about better methods, better methodology, better metrics, or, or outcome-based evaluations, uh, you know, that, that keeps me going. And I enjoy it and, um, you know, look forward to continuing to do it as long as I can. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all that you're doing for our community as a whole, you know, and driving it forward. Because I really do think, as you just said, that that's an important contribution and and that it's helpful for all of us. Um, my last question before I let you go is just if you have any advice for people who are kind of earlier in their career, or advice that you would have given to yourself. Yeah, I think early. I mean, it's 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 definitely a more mature field than when I when I started out. So I think there's a lot of of more information out there. But I think you know, on that note, because it's starting to mature and, you know, where things have moved a little bit faster, I'd say, number one, know the history. You know, that a lot of these questions we're asking now are not the first time. Understand the roots of UX research, whether it be, you know, computer science, usability, psychology, engineering, human factors, even library science is just to name a few. That there's key um, people, there's key terms, there's key, key events and principles. Um, you know, understand some of the lingo when people talk about an affordance, um, or, you know, what ISO 9241 part 11 means and, um, that helps get to know some of those principles, some of the methods, you know, you should be familiar and, and, and of course get practice with it, whether it be usability testing, creating your own personas, running a heuristic evaluation, doing a card sort, you hear about it, try it out. You'll see yourself the sort of strengths and weaknesses, but, you know, get to know some pivotal people as well. There's, I think you'll find there's a lot of people out there who are willing to share what they've learned as they've, you know, forged the, through, through the field as well. Well, um, but of course there's, there's limited time. <laughs> Everybody has limited time. So mm -hmm. read papers and journals as somebody who writes a lot, you know, you put your heart and soul into what you write and it really brings clarity. And so I think whether it be the, the Journal of Usability Studies, the CHI Proceedings, there's a lot of influential papers out there. There's a lot of influential books. You don't need an advanced degree. I think there's a lot of people who think that I've got to get a PhD. And while it can help, um, about 10% of the, the field tends to have a PhD. You definitely don't need it. It's really about you know, practice, knowing the fields, and knowing applications. 
Thanks for listening today. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group for a Q&A with Jeff today, Thursday, January 11th at 1 p.m. Pacific. If you aren't already a member of the Slack group, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date on the latest UX research trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, and Laura Levitt, our designer. See you next time.